chirp, chirp. Breaking all the chirp. rules today. I no, like how it. did you get Zika? Because I lived with you for six months and I didn't get it. So, well, I think you have to. I think you get the Zika virus through blood. So, like, if you touch someone's like feces, blood, um, like, I don't think just by like talking to them, you can't get the Zika virus. Because, uh, you know, mosquitoes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Courtney. Good job not playing with toy species. We didn't even clean the apartment that much, so how did I not die? I must have physically pained you to not clean very often. I mean, I was often. in grad school. She I made me clean. clean. We oh, clean okay. like once a week, but it's—I <laughs> was clean. I mean, compared to my next oh, roommate okay. who like cleaned the bathroom once a week, we were not that clean. And I mean, like straight up bleach everything. She's like, she's like. Taylor, you need to clean I the bathroom. And I was I like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, Ashley, pick up your stuff from the floor, put it on the desk, yeah, the this chair, something everywhere. So, anyway, I, uh, the Zika virus, I went to Indonesia. Oh, that's right. And, yeah, I went on that trip. And, uh, my best friend was like, hey, you know what would be a really great idea? If we went to go check out this graveyard in this remote village where they don't bury their dead bodies. And and I was like, what the fuck, Teresa? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's go. Well, <laughs> so we spent like hundreds of dollars. Nobody wanted to take us. They're like, don't do it. Don't go oh, there. I read and, about that on your blog. Okay, I know what you're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, and we spent like... Uh, the boat ride it was like a 10 minute boat ride cost a hundred dollars and our driver just like stood there on the dock and just like waved goodbye to us and he's like good luck guy i'm like what are you doing like why are we doing this and they take us you know past this remote village on the side of this hill like across the lake from the volcano uh and this is like outside of bali and um we show up at this other dock and I thought they were going to kill us. And uh, there were just <laughs> dead bodies everywhere. <laughs> there was mosquitoes everywhere. And I was getting bit by mosquitoes. And two weeks later, when I came back to the States, I went to the hospital because I was dying. Um, I thought I had malaria. So. No, you just had Zika. I thought I had malaria, but I got tested. And they're like, you don't have malaria. And I'm like, well, what do I have? And they're like, we don't know, but have a good day. And I'm like, I literally, so I went back to me and Courtney's apartment and I just died for a week. I was just in my room. Well, like, did you go to kill him and hide him? Of course I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why did you go to kill him and hide him? That sounds like kill him and hide him standard operating procedure. It's, it's, no, it's McCullough Hyde. It's oh. the hospital in Oxford. That's all Courtney ever no. kill him and hide him when she went there for her knee. Because they're horrible. <laughs> they're going to kill you and hide your body. No, I went to um, the hospital in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, well, okay. also standard operating kill them and hide them procedure. Went back to my mattress on the floor in Courtney's room because I was, I'd already moved out. Oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> it was just like, it was just a mattress on the floor and like red walls everywhere, like all around me. Oh yeah, you and... did have the red room. <laughs> I was like hallucinating and I like one day I thought I was in a Chinese like uh, whorehouse <laughs> and you know like you know human trafficking just like a fucking random mattress on the floor red walls like sweating to death going in and out of consciousness Courtney wasn't there so she would never feed me <laughs> I'm not gonna lie it was probably the end of grad school so I was probably just living in my office <laughs> oh my goodness that's crazy Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, where two best friends tell each other stories about history, politics, and true crime about 700 miles apart. I'm Courtney. I'm Ashley. And today we have our special guest. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> We're really good at this, you guys. <laughs> I'm currently in South Korea. It is 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. It's like 8.17 in New Hampshire and ohio on saturday so she's like way ahead of us all right should we get into dictators and dead bodies yes so this week's episode we're going to do a dictator double header uh since taylor and i both studied international studies together 
at Miami, we thought we would talk about our favorite thing. Also, sorry if I sound horrible. I have an upper respiratory infection, which is why we were talking about Zika virus. <laughs> so, Taylor, I'm going to let you pick. Do you want to go first or do you want me um, to go first? I'll go first. Okay. All right. So, dun dun dun. Chile, South America, Pinochet. Back in 1971. Just kidding. Um, the time of disco. All right, back in the day, um, I forget which year this was, but the very, very beginning started out with the Navy, the USS Baltimore at the True Balloon Saloon. <laughs> Wait, and that's a real name? Tr- it's True Blue Saloon, Valparaiso. Ooh. Yep. Um, some, you know, just a bunch of military guys getting in fights at a bar. Americans spitting on pictures of Arturo Pratt, pissing off the other, like, military, the Chilean military guys. That's smart. And, you know, one thing led to another. Two American soldiers died. Um, and Chile had to apologize uh, for it. And Benjamin Harrison, who, by the way, went to Miami University of Ohio. Our prestigious alumni. There's a hall named after him. Great kind of a creepy call he sent a strong message to congress it was like hey dude like you fucking killed us apologize and give us money so they did and that was the first time that chile ever had to like bow down to the united states all right continuing um basically u.s imperialism do you guys have any comments on u.s imperialism not a fan yeah not great <laughs> too much <of> it. <laughs> um so the u.s pretty much owns like all of chile because like well i take that back so chile owed the united states a lot of money um so you know after they got out of spain's threshold then they started taking money from the united states and they like repeated the same pattern and chile owed like 864 million dollars to government agencies in america and 493 million dollars to u.s private creditors it's a lot. And the copper is like one of the biggest, um, the biggest money making of Chile. And the United States owned or it controlled 80% of the Chilean copper industry, um, which uh, copper was four fifths of all export earnings. So anyway, anyway, um, I want to get into Pinochet. So, but uh, yeah, we had a space station in Easter Island. So, when Allende, when, do you guys know anything about President Allende? I know he is a very famous uh, relative who is a writer. That is true. I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. So, uh, anyway, he was a Marxist and socialist president, and he wanted to kick out, like, all of the United States' influence on Chile, which was a ton. Um, Can I just say, seems like a great plan to live a long life. I know. <laughs> but the funny <laughs> thing is um, that Fidel Castro came to Chile to visit Allende. And, well, he also gave him, like, a pistol, which I'll get into later. And he warned Allende. He's like, dude, he's like, you need to stop, like, provoking the United States. You're going to get yourself killed. This is exactly how the conversation went, I swear. Just <laughs> um, I hope it is. So he's like, Allende, dude, come on. And Allende's like, what, man? Like, I can, you know, I'm president. So the U.S. was, like, pouring money into a bunch of uh, media as well. Like, the telephone company, um, newspaper, like, um, uh, Mercurio, which is a really famous newspaper in Chile. Um, so they, they were just controlling not only the economy, uh, the banks, the media. Like, the United States had its hand, like, on Chili's balls, just like grabbing it. That's a very, very <laughs> accurate description. <laughs> so anyway, Allende was like, "Oh, like let's kick the United States out," and America was like, "Fuck you." <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> so they threw. So the U.S. Export Import Bank, which provided about two hundred eighty million dollars in commercial loans and credits between nineteen sixty seven and nineteen seventy to Chile. Granted, not a fucking penny of financing or lending in 1971. Um, and Allende was killed in 1972, 
Um, I forget which year it was. But um, anyway, so it was like 1972, 1973. Mm-hmm. And the military decided to overthrow him. I think I just jumped right ahead of myself. <laughs> I just just skipped. I was just got so excited. Um, we do that all the time. You're cool. <laughs> so Allende, he was a Marxist socialist. Uh, Chile did elect him, and he did want to overthrow uh, or kick out America. Um, oh, and then Russia and other communist countries. He started like taking loans from communist countries. So that was another reason why America was like, dude, let's get this guy out of here. Like, get him out. I mean, it's basic Cold War mantra if you're you're either pro-US or pro-Soviets. I mean, like, where else was he going to get the money? Like, who else wanted to give Chile, like, loans other than the United States? Yeah. Russia and Cuba. Who else had mon- enough money to give? <laughs> Nobody. The bank of hopes and dreams is gone. So, 1973, September 11th. September 11th is such an important date in history um, for many reasons. So, uh, the, September 11th, 1973 was the overthrow of Allende. They say he killed himself, but there are recent studies say there's a 300 page document that they found in 2011. Uh, after the 2010 earthquake uh, that contains documents. And then along with the new autopsy of Allende, they found out that he was not, like he did not commit suicide, but he was assassinated with two guns, a small pistol, and the AK-47 that Fidel Castro gave him. And his last words, Trabajadores de mi patria, tengo fe en Chile, su destino, Según ustedes, sabiendo que mucho más temprano que tarde de nuevo Avenida Grande Alameda, una sociedad mejor, viva Chile, vivan los trabajadores. So, yep, Allende died. So that was cool. <laughs> um, moving on. I'm looking at my notes right now. Wait, tell us what his last words mean in English, because it's been like sixth grade. I took Spanish, so. So he's talking to the workers. So. Um, he's talking to the workers of Chile. He's like, I have faith, like in you guys. I have faith in Chile and our destiny. Um, a lot sooner rather than later. Uh, basically, like we'll have, I believe that we'll have a better society. Uh, li- long live Chile and long live the workers. So, I mean, honestly, like he had great intentions. He had great intentions for Chile. He really meant well to everyone, but he kind of fucked up the economy. Um, there was a lot of, I don't know, he just, he just kind of fucked up. And then he really pissed off America. Um, but he had good intentions about it. But on the other hand, Pinochet, he wanted to build the economy, but then he just fucked up society. And killed a bunch of people. Uh, but people love him. I feel like in Latin America, it's 50-50. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I have people, like, they're like, oh, like, Pinochet, dictator, killed everyone. And then there's, like, you know, the richer people in Chile, they're like, oh, we we miss him. Like, he was so great. Like, you know, he, he did amazing things for the country. Um, so, onwards... So, so he, honestly, like, in my studies of Pinochet, like, you think dictator, like, he killed a bunch of people, like, bad, bad, bad. Um, but I, I heard what a lot of people were saying about him, like, the good things and how much they liked him. So I was like, hmm, I'm going to look into this. Like, and I was, like, searching for good things about him. And I tried looking at, like, the other side of Pinochet. And, um... Basically, he said left it like in the Pinochet file. He said, I don't know if he said, but uh, Cornbleu said, the author of the Pinochet file, that left extremists continue to attack officers and soldiers. If the army should let this problem get out of hand, the result would be far greater bloodshed than Chile is presently experiencing. Uh, 
And then it also states that Pinochet never wanted the armed forces to really get involved. He wanted them to remain in their traditional roles as professionals and not involve itself in politics. But the fact that the, um, the deteriorating economy and political situation forced Pinochet to reluctantly to join in the military intervention. Uh, so it was pretty much like, hmm, you know, like, like we can have blood or we can have like a lot of blood. So, I mean, he was, he was still, and it was mostly like Manuel Contreras. So Manuel Contreras, my favorite person in history, um, he was basically like the knife behind the scenes. He was the one. Like, you know, Pinochet was the face, but Manuel Contreras was the knife, like, slashing everyone. Um, he was the head of, you know, the, like, Chilean CIA. So it was called DINA. Uh, it, it's like the CIA. And it was renamed CNI for uh, uh, Central Nacional de Informaciones. Um, so he was, like, he was basically head of Chilean CIA, between like 1974 and 1977. Um, and then Pinochet ended up changing it to the CNI and they all kicked Manuel Contreras out of it. Um, and School of the Assassins, you remember hearing about that? I remember hearing about it because Dr. Ziegler said she wanted to go protest it, but like if you step, like you can't actually step over the line because or am I thinking of School of Americas? It's yeah. the same thing. School of the Assassins, School of the Americas. But basically, it's a school where a bunch of dictators were educated in the U.S. And people protest it. But if you step over, like, basically the property line, they'll arrest you <laughs> real quick. Well, so it's it's at Fort Benning in Georgia. So, like, it's a military base. So you can't even get on without, like, a military ID for, like, official purposes. So, yeah, you will get arrested if you, like, go in it. <laughs> Um, but I went into it, <laughs> like, and I'm like, oh, take me to the School of the Assassins, and I <laughs> took a picture in front of it, and I, like, went riding past it one day, and I was like, hmm, like, what's going on over there? And I really wanted to go in the building, but, uh, you know, I didn't want to get arrested. And it changed. It's not the same, so let me explain what it is. So it opened up in Panama at first, um, after, like, during the Cold War, to, uh, with, like, all international, like, international military like officials to train them um with torturing methods anti-insurgency methods to control the population and it just got a really bad name uh and this was all under like pinochet and uh manuel contreras went to this school he was one of them um but it ended up moving to fort benning and oh oh let me mention this. It was all paid by U.S. taxpayer money. Oh, that's good. Yeah, super good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so the the School of the Americas is a school that has run more dictators than any other school in the history of the world. Um, but they did, like, after everything that happened... Um, oh, and Dina, the, like, CIA of Chile... One in seven members of the command staff graduated from the school. That seems like a coincidence or not. I know. But I also, I was like, oh, this school is awful. Like, oh, this is so <laughs> terrible. But I like to look at the good side of things, too, to, like, I don't, because I don't want to be, like, I just don't want to judge things too harshly. So this other fun fact, so only 500 of the 60,000 graduates were linked to violence of human rights in the region which is only, it's less than 1%. It's like 0.83%. I was like, oh, that's a really low number. Only, it was only 500. <laughs> Tagline of School of America. <laughs> only 500 graduates are linked to human rights crimes. Yeah, but they changed everything. Like, they changed the curriculum. They changed the name. Uh, they have a new mission. It's to promote democracy, respect human rights, and to learn, like, the knowledge and understanding of U.S. military, like, customs and traditions. So, if you are protesting, you should look into what their new mission is and leave the poor military people alone. <laughs> they have enough problems. Do you speak from experience? I... <laughs> they do have enough problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, all right. So quickly moving on. All right. So blah, blah, blah. Pinochet. Did I mention the Chicago boys? Operation Condor. Kissinger. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Let me just. I need to finish this up. Um, I could go on for days about this, but. I know you have a thesis on it. I know. All right. So quickly, uh, the Chicago boys, they took about like maybe 30 Chileans, brought them to Chicago to study the economy, like economics there in the United States, brought them back to Chile. Uh, they did some shit with the economy. It grew. <laughs> it's called like the Chilean miracle. And you speak like we actually had to take economics in, cl- in college. I did. <laughs> oh, I'm I know. A, I'm a minor in the it. same program and it, it was a struggle. I know. It was stupid. <laughs> Ever heard of the gross domestic product? Gross. (laughs) GDP. (laughs) So, like, the Chilean miracle was, you know, a hashtag, no, like, parentheses, like, miracle, not miracle, um, because the GDP rose 4.2%, which is really, which is a lot for GDP. Uh, But, you know, unemployment also rose almost, like, 40%, and they privatized... Uh, all like social services, education, health system, uh, social services, all that stuff. They opened the market. Um, they really put a huge gap in social equality. Um, so they basically like took all of society, like, you know, put a bomb right in the middle of it and it just exploded and just like separate it. So now there's just like a ton of poor and a ton of really rich people. Uh, so he helps the economy, but he also was just like kind of fucked up society and all that crap. Um, Chicago boys, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. And then, um, so Pinochet was like, oh, everyone loves me. I did such a good job with the economy. Let's have an election. And he won in the 1980. Well, so the new constitution was put in like September 11th, 1980. And in 1980, they had a election and I think Pinochet just wanted to be like, Oh, do people really like me? And he won. So he's like, okay, great. All right. They do good. I can sleep well at night. Um, and then 1988, there was another election and he's like, fuck, (laughs) So there's like this huge like no campaign and the no won by 55.99%. So Pinochet got booted out of there and that was the end of his dictatorship. And about 50%, I don't know about the percentage, but you know, it's half of Chile pretty much loves Pinochet. The other half is like, what a dickwad. (laughs) (laughs) And he did kill a bunch of people. So that's great. Anyway. So that's Pinochet. And oh, and then I guess I'm going to add one more little comment. Um, Leave Chile's natural resources alone. (laughs) Like the the people, those with the most resources end up being the poorest people. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, just anyway, I could go on for days. Oh, we've gone on for days. (laughs) Let's get to dictator number two. Our favorite Spanish dictator, Francisco. Well, fuck, I touch things. No! Shit. I'm using my tablet. I can't read anything now. I broke everything. Are we talking about Franco? <laughs> yeah. My man. I broke everything. My man. Just kidding. I hate you. Franco. Oh, I hate He hated women. He suppressed women. He got rid of birth control. He wanted women to like work in the houses. Like, oh, God forbid. Like, seriously, in the house, in the kitchen. Jeez, what kind of man are Wait, you? What, you not cook or something, Taylor? <laughs> Let me just tell you about. I'm a terrible. <laughs> Before I go Snapchat on how to how do I make coffee? Yeah, I always like text Courtney, and I'm like, Courtney, like how how much <laughs> coffee do I put in the coffee pot? Um. I always... My answer is always a lot. That's a dangerous question to answer. Okay. Now that I got... I fixed it. Yeah. Yeah. Something popped up and it was like, let's ask you 20 questions about your tablet. I was like, not now. (laughs) Yes, now. So, let's talk about Francisco Franco. Yay. Yay. Wait, can I tell a quick story real quick about Franco? Go for it. So, 
I dated a Spanish guy from Barcelona once. Back in my day. <laughs> Do you guys remember him? I remember him. So I went to Barcelona with him, and he he owned this, like, property in the middle of El Campo. It was, like, a millions of dollars, like, valued property, like, 20 bedrooms. It had a church in it. It was really old. It was falling apart. What? It was beautiful, though. But, like, his uncle, well, he, I guess he owned it, but his uncle took care of it. Or maybe he just told me that, you know, you know, men. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so his dad sued Franco for, like, he oh. tried to take his property. You know, like, he was like, oh, like, this is my country. I'm going to take this land. And my ex's dad was like, uh, no, this is my land. I own this. I'm going to sue you. So I was like, what? Your dad sued the dictator? And he's like, no, he sued the government. And I'm like, but Franco was the government. And he's like, no. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and then his dad got like a million, like millions of, like a million, I don't know. Or he got the money and put it in his savings and it got up to like a million or so dollars. Not dollars. Um, but yeah, he got a lot of money from Franco. AKA the government. Anyway, so go on. <laughs> okay, so Franco was born in Dece- December 4th, 1892. Sagittarius? I don't know. Um, In Galicia? That's not right. And I just, I'm going to say his parents' name just because I love Spanish names because they go on forever. His father was Nicolas Franco y Salgado Arejo, and he was a Spanish Navy man. His mother was Maria del Pilar Bajomere y Pardo de Andre, who was also upper middle class. He had two brothers, Nicolas, who was a naval officer and diplomat, Ramon, who was an aviator, and a leftist leading Freemason because you know that's significant to mention and he had two sisters Maria del Pilar and Maria de la Paz Maria y Maria you know I'm really glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you if he had any brothers for, for my sake <laughs> you know in case you're wondering there could be some Franco Francos around do you have any like nephews um, maybe <laughs> little little Franco was planning to go into the navy but the Spanish-American War actually forced him into the army instead. Woo! I know, mixing it up. <laughs> so indecisive. Your favorite war. In 1907, he entered the academy in Toledo, and he graduated it three years later as a lieutenant. Woo! Yeah, Taylor, we're gonna need your military commentary on hierarchy because I don't know it. LT. I know the news. You can't spell loss without LT. <laughs> Um, he heads off in 1912 with a commission to Morocco because the Spanish had a colony over there and they're uh, fighting the native Moroccans in the Rif War. But this earned him a reputation as a good officer. So, you know, work in that chain. Command. <laughs> the next year, he transferred to the newly formed Regulares, which basically meant he had command over Moroccan troops. That quickly? Wow. Yeah, well, it was basically Spanish officers over Moroccan troops, and so they're probably like, don't want to deal with this. I mean, I guess that does make sense. A lot of LTs in foreign countries during wartime, they do get promoted really quickly. Um, okay, myself. For the reason why he decided to do this was because he failed to win the hand of his first love, Sofia Serban. Aww. Yeah, so he took his like, I'm gonna go command more troops in war. Even dictators can find love. <laughs> Apparently not. She jilted him. <laughs> Title of the episode, Even Dictators Can Find Love. <laughs> so, in 1916, he got shot by enemy machine gun fire. At least and... he was loved. <laughs> so, he was badly wounded in the abdomen, specifically the liver, at the skirmish of El Boots, and possibly lost a testicle. Uh, physicians later concluded that his intestines were spared because he inhaled at the moment he was shot smart he only needs one testicle you know so now we know bronco took over a country with one nut i mean <laughs> i mean it may make it harder for him to find love <laughs> i'm looking for love with one nut 
Maybe that's why he was so suppressive on women. It probably was his first actually, girlfriend. Yeah, that explains a lot. He's so bitter. You know? He's like, they're all judging me in my one testicle. Someone like grabs him by the nuts, and they're like, oh, <laughs> never mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> Carry on. I was gonna say it's probably he's probably mad at women because his first love said no, and then he got he got shot. His nut got shut off. Shot off. That poor that poor man. He murdered a lot of people. Still the kind of a month. Well. Though. You know, I try to look at the good in everyone. <laughs> so, out of this, he gets uh, promoted and receives the cross of Maria Cristina, first class. And he spends the next couple years in the Spanish Foreign Legion as second command and then commander. He does get married in 1924 to Maria del Carmen Pollo y Martinez Valdez. With one nut. And guess, with one nut. And guess what? The one nut gets him a daughter. In 1927, another Maria. Can we talk about how he married someone with the same name as his both of his sisters, though? How weird is that? His daughter's name, Maria Del Carmen. Oh my gosh, like that—that's crazy to me. All the Marias. Okay, proceed. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I have to stop and drink a lot so my throat doesn't hurt. Um, actually, post honeymoon, um, he was summoned to Rey Alfonso, uh, the thirteenth. And it shows that he is a monarchical officer. And he got promoted to colonel. It shows that it's not really hard to get promoted. And it's easy. It's If a dictator can find love with one testicle, so can you. And not just you guys. I'm talking to everyone. Our audience. (laughs) You guys can find love, too. (laughs) Sometimes. I have a dog. What more do I need? Coffee. That's a weird direction to take that, Courtney. I just said, I like, you know what? I was sick <laughs> and Schnitzel just like laid by me and tried to lick my eye to make me feel better. Oh. It was kind of aggressive. <laughs> That's adorable. It's unconditional love there. Okay. Um, 1926, he became the youngest general in Spain. So, you know. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah. In 1928, <laughs> Franco was appointed director to the new military academy in Zaragoza, which was basically, they're like, instead of all these separate ones, we're just going to have one. He should have gone to School of the Americas. Should have. He should have. It would have been great. And he was there until uh, from 28 to 31. And basically, this just builds a large military base for Franco because he's teaching the next generation of Spanish military officers and all that jazz. Sorry, I got to blow my nose again. And all that jazz. Maybe I should have just had some whiskey with this. It would have numbed all my pain. Okay. <laughs> We're getting to the the Second Spanish Republic because the monarchy falls in 1931. You know. You know, they say oh. failure is the best, like, teacher. Spain has a lot of, like, republics and empires failing, so they should know the best. Yeah, but do they have a historian? <laughs> They basically, the government falls because they had lost their overseas colonies. They had failed to conquer Morocco. There's resentment and nationalist movements, discontent among the military, you know, normal stuff. I mean, but do they have visas to get into Morocco, though? Because that might have helped. Maybe. I don't know. Can you, like, put in, like, some, like, crickets <laughs> in the background? I'll oh, trying to find, like, the um, rim shot. <laughs> That's the one we need for a lot of this because we have really bad jokes. I mean, <laughs> realistically, it would just be all room shot and no talking if we did it after every bad joke. So, Franco gets kicked out of being the director of the military academy, but he pissed off the new war minister in his farewell address uh, because apparently he insulted him, you know, and retaliation was government surveillance. Ah, government yeah. surveillance. Continue. You know, they're just following Franco around. Uh, also, at this time, we find out Franco is a believer in contumierno, which basically means he's anti-Jew, Mason, communist, leftist, because he believes they aim to destroy Christ- uh, Christians. This is not pertinent at all today. Not at all. Chirp, chirp, chirp. So then we see like his anti-leftist movements, and he's conjuring the government. He ends up getting moved around in different posts, that either demote him, like, over low his status, or place him on the outside of the good positions. Society? <laughs> Basically, he was just like, I don't like these positions. And they're like, well, suck it up. And his wife was like, neither do I. 
<laughs> that was pretty good. So then there were some elections in 1933, and uh, it caused revolutionary communists and anarchists to have a movement, and they held a stronghold in Asturias. Ooh, Asturias. That's right. And guess who was put in charge of suppressing that movement? Was it Franco? Me. <laughs> yes, Taylor, it was you. It was <laughs> She's a witch. She's a witch. Don't tell people, you guys. yourself. That wasn't us. <laughs> well, Franco successfully tamped that shit down. <laughs> Is that the technical term? Yeah. Yeah. That's the historical term. <laughs> I like it. Uh, and he this got him to become chief of general staff May 1935. And he's moving up more because in February 1936, he becomes commander-in-chief of the armies of Africa. What armies in Africa Spain has, I don't know. Maybe like six people, but that's cool. The next election in 1936 was won by the left. And basically anyone right-leaning in the country was like, oh my gosh, communist dictatorship. Oh my god, no. Uh, you know, normal. Chirp, chirp, chirp. So back to Franco. Um, he gets set to be the Canary Islands military commander. I wonder if he had any friends. I'm leaning toward no. He was probably so saw that one nut. It's really He's lonely like, at the top. all I could think about. And his wife was like, we know. <laughs> I think I killed her. This is Courtney's death mark. I'm fine. <laughs> it hurts, but I'm fine. So as Frog goes on the Canary Islands, there's a coup forming. Do, 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 do. And he gets approached by this guy called Emilia Mola. Great name. And basically, Franco's trying to appear indifferent to all this turmoil Spain. And basically, I equate it to the the nice little dog meme where he's sitting and everything's on fire. And he goes, everything is fine. Everything <laughs> is fine. Nothing to see here. You mean our life in photo form? Yes. Sometimes when shit just hits the fan and you just have so much to do and everything just feels like it's falling apart you just sit there with your hands in your lap just calm just sit there and just smile that was deep this <laughs> has nothing to do with my that life the girl in the army <laughs> right okay so basically the rebels are getting tired of front franco so they plan to go ahead con paquito or sin paquito and paquito was their nickname for franco <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so basically they're planning to go ahead with or without him and when he was forced to choose he chose the rebels and he was given the command of Africa the African forces and the rebellion begins in July so Franco is on the side of the nationalists which are more right-leaning versus the Republicans who are more left-leaning so the Spanish Civil War um, okay let's get to the Spanish Civil War all right July 18th um, Franco, he assumes the leadership of 30,000 soldiers of the Spanish Army of Africa. And basically, a lot of the beginning time was just trying to secure control over the Spanish Moroccan protectorate, basically their colony. So Franco had to win the support of the native and their authorities and control, get control over the army. Want to guess his method? Anyone? killing people correct he uh executed about 200 senior officers loyal to the republic including one of his own cousins he sounds awesome <laughs> wait he killed his cousin yeah so now he has the problem he has control over morocco but he has thirty thousand troops that need to get to spain how do you get to spain uh by boat well flying yes Swimming. Well, the navy driving just you can drive to over. Spain on the underwater tunnel from America to Spain. Oh, wait, sorry. I wasn't supposed to tell anyone about that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have clearance for that, Taylor. Sucks to be you guys. <laughs> I go to Spain every day. Hi, Taylor. We're going to wait for the people with the, like, black, to get you in the black mask and everything. It's right. cool. We'll miss you. I'm like that with you. Um, so the Navy is controlled by the... Republicans, and so he has to figure it out, and he asks for help from Benito Mussolini. Oh, cool. He does have friends. He does have friends. Uh, he gets an offer of unconditional arms and planes, and then uh, in Germany, 
Uh, oh no. Wilhelm Canaris, who is in- the head of the military intelligence, persuades Hitler to support the nationalists. Of course he does. I knew we weren't going to get out of this without talking about our friend Adolf. <laughs> I knew it. So basically, with his new friends, he gets enough uh, support with air support to break the blockade and deploy some soldiers over to Spain. The best thing is, uh, these play like they're like they all have the Spanish nationalist insignia painted on them, but all the they're all flown by Italian or German nationalists. So you know, it's like look, we're Spanish. We it's don't like... speak any Spanish. <laughs> awesome. Yep. Um, so on September 21st, at the town of Maqueda, which is about 80 kilometers from Madrid, Franco orders a detour to, he frees the garrison at the Alcazar of Toledo, and by, it was finished by September 27th. So basically, they're sweeping their way through southern Spain. They're about in central Spain now. However, it, the designated leader of the uprising, General Jose Sanurjo, died um, July 20th, 1936, in a plane crash. But who's to lead them? Who will help them in the middle of this civil war? A lieutenant. I bet I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's a general now. Um, He's always a lieutenant to us. There's always lieutenants in history. <laughs> lieutenant one, not... <laughs> you guys are terrible people. <laughs> we know. Well, they, they decide July 24th, so four days later, to establish a coordinating junta. You know, every Latin American country, Spanish-speaking country's favorite thing to establish. So it was initially Mola and uh, three other generals and two colonels. And Franco was added in early August. But by end of September, it was decided that Franco should be commander-in-chief. But really what secures his position is his nut. Sorry. <laughs> um, Hitler decided that all of Germany's aid to the nationalists would go to Franco. Thanks, Adolf. You the realist. By the 1st of October, Franco was publicly proclaimed as Generalissimo of the National Army and Jefe del Estado, or head of state. It's a hybrid state from 1937 to 48, and it's the National Syndicate Falange, which is a phalanx in English. It's a fascist political party and the Carlist monarchy monarchist party into one party under his rule. That seems like it's going to go well. So basically, Franco begins depicting himself as defender of Catholic Spain against atheist communism. So that's going to help. And he's reckon- the regime is recognized on February 27th by uh, Britain and France. So, you know, he's basically won. Was France occupied by that point? No, because it's uh, 1939. Oh, okay. I was going to say, was it really France or was it Germany pretending to be France? So, Madrid falls March 28th, and victory is proclaimed April 1st, 1939. With the last April Fools! <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the Spaniards wished it was April Fools. Um, the same day, Franco placed his sword upon the altar of a church and in a vow, promised that he would never never again take up his sword unless Spain itself was threatened by invasion. Can you picture the stained glass window, window interpretation of this? Beautiful. <laughs> so, um, during the Civil War, about 70,000 people were executed, and the victory was followed by thousands of summary executions, about 15,000 to 25,000 people, and imprisonment. Uh, there were forced labor camps where they built railways, dried out swamps, digging canals, construction of the Valley of the Fallen monument, you know, normal, normal victory stuff. Um, in 1940, the ordered execution of the president of the Catalan government, Luis Campes, um, was basically the most prominent noted, like notable cases of suppression by Franco. We see that leftists are facing higher death tolls, which is not shocking. And there's guerrilla resistance um, in the mountainous regions well into the 1950s. So let's get into World War II. I know. Oh, my favorite. Like we were, I know. We've already talked about Hitler and Mussolini. So in October 1940, Hitler and Franco met in France to discuss Spain's possible entry on the side of the Axis. 
but Franco, Franco demanded too much, including supplies of food and fuel, as well as Spanish control of Gibraltar and French North Africa was a bit much. But he... <laughs> Could you imagine what he's requesting that Hitler's like, yeah, that's a bit much. Um, but Franco graciously allowed Spanish volunteers to fight for the German army against the USSR, but they couldn't um, fight against the West because, you know, democracies. Uh, once France fell in June 1940, Spain did ad- adopt a pro-access stance because why not then? It seems like the Germans are going to win. But after the war, they switched back once it looked like the Axis was losing. They're like, okay, we're, we're going to be neutral again. I said, of course they did. What idiot stays on the losing side when it's clear that the losing side is going to lose? If you have the chance to jump ship and you're a garbage country. Not that, France, not that Spain is a garbage country, but it was run by garbage people at the time. At this point, like, of course, it's viewed as a garbage, garbage way out. But the Spanish de- government, after the end of the war, attempted to destroy all evidence of its cooperation with the Axis. Powers. Again, of course they did. Franco proclaims Spain a monarchy, um, July 26, 1947, but does not designate a monarch. He leaves it vacant until 1969 when he proclaims himself de facto regent for life. So think of him crowning himself, like waving, doing his good, like Princess Diaries wave. It's all very Henry VIII. It's more Napoleon. I'm punching everyone in the face right now in my mind. <laughs> I'm going with Napoleon. I can see that too. I was thinking when he cr- crowned Anne Boleyn, but I can see Napoleon. Like Franco's crowning himself. Yeah, using the third person and everything. Like Franco declares Franco monarch of Spain. I want to take that crown. I'm going to stand there, crown him, turn the crown upside down, and just slam it into his head. <laughs> so he is basically picking up all these privileges of the king. He wore the uniform of the Captain General rank reserved for the king and resided in El Pardo Palace. Well, at least he's staying in the palace and not his own apartment. I mean, those palaces in Spain are pretty nice. Yeah. A lot of gold. Lots of gold. So, he wasn't a fascist, which shocks a lot of people, but, like, the general consensus is he's not a fascist, because he's not trying to transform Spanish society. He's more of a traditional conservative. But these are like the consistent points that he has across his really long rule. Authoritarianism, nationalism, Catholicism, anti-Freemasonry, anti-communism, you know, all the goods. And he promoted um, Spanish nationalism through a united national identity by suppressing cultural diversity. You know, like Spanish regions couldn't have their own national identity. They all had to be basically either Castilian Spain or... Andalusian Spain. We see language politics coming into this where Castilian Spanish is promoted, where uh, Catalan, Galician, and Basque are suppressed. Basically, you could speak other dialects at home, but publicly you probably should speak Castilian. You'd be writing in Castilian, all that. Oh my gosh, that's right. So when I was in Barcelona, like everyone spoke uh, Catalan. And, like, I just remember they weren't allowed to speak Spanish at all, like, back then. So, like, you know, a lot of the elders, like, they didn't know how to write or, like, read in Spanish. I mean, they could speak Spanish, but, like, they just, they never grew up speaking Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Barcelona is kind of, like, the prime. And this is why you saw, like, Spain had a lot of nationalist movements because of this suppression. The big one is ETA, which is uh, Basque. Mm -hmm. And so that's why. Just bombing and killing everyone. Not a good thing. Blowing up trains and stuff. Yep, you know, that's what happens. Terrorist group. Yeah, that's what happens when you suppress a group for so long instead of letting them incorporate themselves. You should tell my mom that. <laughs> so, we see that the Catholic Church is upheld as the established church of the state, and it's regaining a lot of privileges it lost under the Republic. Most significantly, I, significantly, I think, is he set up where uh, country towns and rural areas were posted or patrolled by Guardia Civil, basically military police for civilians, as social control and larger cities and capitals were controlled by Policia Armada. Basically, he's using the military as a public police. Franco ruled until he died in the 70s, and he had to pick a successor, so he offered the throne to the Habsburg Archduke, uh, Otto von Habsburg, because he would believe 
uh, it would eliminate the question of a Bourbon monarchy succession. However, Archduke Otto declined and said he would see be seen as a German ruling really Spain, and he was he couldn't forget being Austrian. So he's like, "No, nah, man, I'm good. Good. I like being Austrian." Um, but in 1969, Franco designated Prince Juan Carlos de Bourbon, uh, who he had educated in Spain with the new title of Prince of Spain, Prince of Spain as his heir apparent. So he picked a bourbon, even though he didn't want to, because the only Habsburg said no. <laughs> and this was actually even controversial because uh, Franco didn't want, did not want to pick Juan Carlos's father because he felt he was too leftist. Uh, What's wrong with lefties, huh? Clearly, he doesn't like them. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> he only has one nut, so his opinion's maybe he invalid. Maybe only has nut, guys. That would explain a lot. Most lefties know what, become serial killers. Oh my god, what? <laughs> yeah, it was just a joke. You know, lefties. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Okay, so as Franco got older, there were very various fractions within um, Spain that were jockeying for control, and his control begins to like deteriorate. Beginning July 19th, 1974, Franco became ill from various health problems, and Juan Carlos took over as acting head of state. Franco got better, took it back, but on October 30th, 1975, Franco fell into a coma and was put on life support. He officially died um, November 20th, 1975, of heart failure at the age of 82. I I think this is really telling of his legacy. Um, Franco was never a popular ruler and rarely tried to mobilize mass support but after 1947 there was little direct or organized opposition to his rule and i think that's just because he tried to maintain the country but he never tried like the country didn't really thrive at all it's just kind of chugging along okay and that's the life of francisco franco wow that was that was long that was deep (laughs) (laughs) that was a lot of history i i feel like you know after you finish american history in high school after a long chapter, and you're just like, fuck. Everything's horrible. <laughs> Wait, that's just international studies. This is why we record it. Like, that's just us what? after we finished a class in international studies. We'd be like, oh, crap. Everything's horrible. I hated history in high school. Absolutely hated it. And then when I got to college, I'm like, let's study international history. What, you don't like nationalist <laughs> history? Is that what you're telling me? I just like, you know, like I hate, I hated history. But then I decided to study history. I think you just hate how college or high school history is taught. I just wanted to travel the world. And that was like the only way I could get credits. <laughs> Fair enough. It's just the system. Okay. So thank you for listening to the Cult of Domesticity. We are available on iTunes, Google Play, Chorus, and Podbean. If we are not on your preferred app, let us know so we can get on that. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes to help spread the word. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Domestic Podcast and on Instagram at The Cult of Domesticity uh, to get the episode tip-off recipe of the week and additional information about the week's topics. If you'd like to suggest a recipe or topic, you can email us email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com. Long distance high five? Super long distance high five. Three ways. High five, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs>